Section number 15 of Light Science for Leisure Hours. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Light Science for Leisure Hours by Richard A. Proctor. Vesuvius. The numerous and violent eruptions from Mount Vesuvius during the last two centuries seem to afford an answer to those who think there are traces of a gradually diminishing activity in the Earth's internal forces. That such a diminution is taking place we may admit, but that its rate of progress is perceptible. That we can point to a time within the historical epoch nay, even within the limits of geological evidence, at which the Earth's internal forces were certainly more active than they are in the present time, may, I think, be denied absolutely. When the science of geology was but young, and its professors sought to compress within a few years, at the outside, a series of events which we know now must have occupied many centuries there was room indeed for the supposition that modern volcanic eruptions as compared with ancient outbursts are but as the efforts of children compared with the work of giants and accordingly we find a distinguished french geologist writing even so late as eighteen twenty nine that in ancient times two les phénomènes geologiques se passant dans les dimensions s'étouple de sel qu'il présent aujourd'hui but now we have such certain evidence of the enormous length of the intervals within which volcanic regions assume their present appearance we have such satisfactory means of determining which of the events occurring within these intervals were or were not contemporary, that we are safe from the error of assuming that nature, at a single effort, fashioned widely extended districts, just as we now see them, and accordingly we have the evidence of the distinguished geologist, Sir Charles Lyell, that there is no volcanic mass of ancient date distinctly referable to a single eruption which can even rival in volume the matter poured out from Skaptar Jokul in 1783. In the volcanic region of which Susuvius or Soma is the principal vent, we have remarkable instance of the deceptive nature of the state of rest into which some of the principal volcanoes frequently fall for many centuries together. For how many centuries before the Christian era Vesuvius had been at rest is not known, but this is certain, that from the landing of the first Greek colony in southern Italy, Vesuvius gave no signs of internal activity. It was recognized by Strabo as a volcanic mountain, but Pliny did not include it in the list of active volcanoes. In those days the mountain presented a very different appearance from that which it now exhibits. In place of the two peaks now seen, 
there was a single somewhat flattish summit on which a slight depression marked the place of an ancient crater the fertile slopes of the mountain were covered with well-cultivated fields and the thriving cities herculaneum pompeii and stabi stood near the base of the sleeping mountain so little did any thought of danger suggest itself in those times that the bands of slaves murderers and pirates which flocked to the standards of spartacus found a refuge to the number of many thousands within the very crater itself but though vesuvius was at rest the region of which vesuvius is the main vent was far from being so the island of pithecusa the modern ischia was shaken by frequent and terrible convulsions it is even related that Prochetta, the modern Proceda, was rent from Pithecusa in the course of a tremendous upheaval, though Pliny derives the name Prochita, or poured forth, from the supposed fact of this island having been poured forth from an eruption from Ischia. Far more probably, Prochita was formed independently by submarine eruptions, as the volcanic islands near Santorini have been produced in more recent times. So fierce were the eruptions from Pithecusa that several Greek colonies which attempted to settle on this island were compelled to leave it. About 380 years before the Christian era, colonists under king hero of syracuse who had built a fortress on pithecusa were driven away by an eruption nor were eruptions the sole cause of danger poisonous vapors such as are emitted by volcanic craters after eruption appear to have exhaled at times from extensive tracts on pithecusa and thus to have rendered the island uninhabitable still nearer to vesuvius lay the celebrated lake avernus the name avernus is said to be a corruption of the greek word ernos signifying without birds the poisonous exhalations from the waters of the lake destroying all birds which attempted to fly over its surface Doubt has been thrown on the destructive properties assigned by the ancients to the vapors ascending from Avernus. The lake is now a healthy and agreeable neighborhood, frequented, says Humboldt, by many kinds of birds, which suffer no injury whatever, even when they skim the very surface of the water. Yet there can be little doubt that Avernus hides the outlet of an extinct volcano, and long after this volcano had become inactive, the lake which concealed its site may have deserved the appellation of Atri Jana Ditris, emitting perhaps gases as destructive of animal life as those suffocating vapors given out by Lake Quilota in quito in 1797 by which whole herds of cattle were killed on its shores or as those deleterious emanations which annihilated all the cattle in the island of lancerote one of the canaries in 1730 while ischia was 
in full activity not only was Vesuvius quiescent, but even Etna seemed to be gradually expiring, so that Seneca ranks this volcano among the number of nearly extinguished craters. At a later epoch, Alien asserted that the mountain itself was sinking, so that seamen lost sight of the summit at a less distance across the seas than of old. Yet within the last two hundred years there have been eruptions from Etna rivaling, if not surpassing, in intensity the convulsions recorded by ancient historians. I shall not here attempt to show that Vesuvius and Etna belong to the same volcanic system, though there is reason not only for supposing this to be the case, but for the belief that all the subterranean regions whose effects have been shown from time to time over the district extending from the Canaries and Azores across the whole of the Mediterranean and into Syria itself belong to but one great center of internal action. But it is quite certain that Ischia and Vesuvius are outlets from a single source. While Vesuvius was dormant, resigning for a while its pretensions to be the principal vent of the great Napoleon volcanic system, Ischia, we have seen, was rent by frequent convulsions, but the time was approaching when Vesuvius was to resume its natural functions, and with all the more energy that they had been for a while suspended. In the year 63, after Christ, there occurred a violent convulsion of the earth around Vesuvius, during which much injury was done to neighboring cities, and many lives were lost. From this period shocks of earthquake were felt from time to time for sixteen years. These grew gradually more and more violent, until it began to be evident that the volcanic fires were about to return to their main vent. The obstruction which had so long impeded the exit of the confined matter was not, however, readily removed, and it was only in August in the year 79, after numerous and violent internal throes, that the superincumbent mass was at length hurled forth. Rocks and cinders, lava, sand, and scoriae were propelled from the crater and spread many miles on every side of Vesuvius. We have an interesting account of the great eruption which followed in a letter from the younger Pliny to the younger Tacitus. The latter had asked for an account of the death of the elder Pliny, who lost his life in his eagerness to obtain a near view of the dreadful phenomenon. He was at that time, says his nephew, with the fleet under the command at Misenum. On August 24th, about one in the afternoon, my mother desired him to observe a cloud of very extraordinary size and shape. He had just returned from taking the benefit of the sun, and after bathing himself in cold water and taking a slight repast, had retired to his study. He arose at once and went out upon a height whence he might more distinctly view this strange phenomenon. 
it was not at this distance discernible from what mountain the cloud issued but it was found afterwards that it came from vesuvius i cannot give a more exact description of its figure than by comparing it to that of a pine tree for it shot up to a great height in the form of a trunk which extended itself at the top into a sort of branches occasioned i suppose either by a sudden gust of air which impelled it whose force decreased as it advanced upwards or else the cloud itself being pressed back by its own weight expanded in the manner the cloud appeared sometimes bright at others dark and spotted as it was more or less impregnated with earth and cinders these extraordinary appearances attracted the curiosity of the elder pliny he ordered a small vessel to be prepared and started to seek a nearer view of the burning mountain his nephew declined to accompany him being engaged with his studies as pliny left the house he received a note from a lady whose house being at the foot of vesuvius was in imminent danger of destruction he set out accordingly with the design of rendering her assistance and also of assisting others for the villas stood extremely thick upon that lovely coast he ordered the galleys to be put to sea and steered directly to the point of danger so cool in the midst of the turmoil around as to be able to make and dictate observations upon the motions and figures of that dreadful scene as he approached vesuvius cinders pumice stones and black fragments of burning rock fell on and around the ships they were in danger too of running aground owing to the sudden retreat of the sea vast fragments also rolled down from the mountain and obstructed all the shore the pilot advising retreat pliny made the noble answer fortune befriends the brave and bade him press onwards to sabai here he found his friend pomponanius in great consternation already prepared for embarking and waiting only for a change in the wind exhorting pomponanius to be of good courage pliny quietly ordered baths to be prepared and having bathed sat down to supper with great cheerfulness or at least which is equally heroic with all the appearance of it assuring his friend that the flames which appeared in several places were merely burning villages plinly presently retired to rest and being pretty fat says his nephew and breathing hard those who attended without actually heard him snore but it became necessary to awaken him for the court which led to his room was now almost filled with stones and ashes he got up and joined the rest of the company who were consulting on the propriety of leaving the house now shaken from side to side by frequent concussions they decided on seeking the fields for safety and fastening pillows on their heads to protect them from falling stones they advanced in the midst of an obscurity greater than that of the darkest night though beyond the limits of the great cloud it was already broad day 
when they reached the shore they found the waves running too high to suffer them safely to venture to put out to sea pliny having drunk a draught or two of cold water lay down on a cloth that was spread out for him but at this moment the flames and sulphurous vapors dispersed the rest of the company and obliged him to rise assisted by two of his servants he got up upon his feet but instantly fell down dead suffocated i suppose says his nephew by some gross and noxious vapor for he always had weak lungs and suffered from a difficulty of breathing his body was not found until the third day after his death when for the first time it was light enough to search for him he was found as he had fallen and looking more like a man asleep than dead but even at misenum there was danger though vesuvius is distant no less than fourteen miles the earth was shaken with repeated and violent shocks insomuch says the younger pliny that they threatened our complete destruction when morning came the light was faint and glimmering the buildings around seemed tottering to their fall and standing on open ground the chariots which pliny had ordered were so agitated backwards and forwards that it was impossible to keep them steady even by supporting them with large stones the sea was rolled back upon itself and many marine animals were left dry upon the shore on the side of vesuvius a black and ominous cloud bursting with sulphurous vapors darted out long trains of fire resembling flashes of lightning but much larger presently the great cloud spread over misenum and the island of capri ashes fell around the fugitives on every side nothing was to be heard but the shrieks of women and children and the cries of men some were calling for their children others for their parents others for their husbands and only distinguishing each other by the voices one was lamenting his own fate another that of his family some wished to die that they might escape the dreadful fear of death but the greater part imagined that the last and eternal night was come which was to destroy the gods and the world together at length a light appeared which was not however the day but the forerunner of an outburst of flames these presently disappeared and again a thick darkness spread over the scene ashes fell heavily upon the fugitives so that they were in danger of being crushed and buried in the thick layer rapidly covering the whole country many hours passed before the dreadful darkness began slowly to be dissipated when at length day returned and the sun was seen faintly shining through the overhanging canopy of ashes every object seemed changed being covered over with white ashes as with a deep snow it is most remarkable that pliny makes no mention in his letter of the destruction of the two populous and important cities pompeii and herculaneum we have seen that 
at Sabay, a shower of ashes fell so heavily that several days before the end of the eruption, the court leading to the elder Pliny's room was beginning to be filled up, and when the eruption ceased, Sabay was completely overwhelmed. Far more sudden, however, was the destruction of Pompeii and Herculaneum. It would seem that the two cities were first shaken violently by the throes of the disturbed mountain. The signs of such a catastrophe have been very commonly assigned to the earthquake which happened in 63, but it seems far more likely that most of them belong to the days immediately preceding the great outburst in 79. In Pompeii, says Sir Charles Lyell, both public and private buildings bear testimony to the catastrophe. The walls are rent, and in many places traversed by fissures still open. It is probable that the inhabitants were driven by these anticipatory throes to fly from the doomed towns. For though Dion Cassius relates that two entire cities, Herculaneum and Pompeii, were buried under showers of ashes, while all the people were sitting in the theater, yet the examinations of the two cities enables us to prove, says Sir Charles, that none of the people were destroyed in the theater, and indeed that there were very few of the inhabitants who did not escape from both cities. Yet, he adds, some lives were lost, and there was ample foundation for the tale in all its most essential particulars. We may note here, in passing, that the account of the eruption given by Dion Cassius, who wrote a century and a half after the catastrophe, is sufficient to prove how terrible an impression had been made upon the inhabitants of Campania, from whose descendants he in all probability obtained the materials of his narrative. He writes that, during the eruption, a multitude of men of superhuman stature, resembling giants, appeared, sometimes on the mountain, and sometimes in the environs, that stones and smoke were thrown out, the sun was hidden, and then the giants seemed to rise again, when the sounds of trumpets were heard, with much other matter of a similar sort. In the great eruption of 79, Vesuvius poured forth lapilli, sand, cinders, and fragments of old lava, but no new lava flowed from the crater, nor does it appear that any lava stream was ejected during the six eruptions, which took place during the following ten centuries. In the year 1036, for the first time, Vesuvius was observed to pour forth a stream of molten lava. Thirteen years later, another eruption took place. Then ninety years passed without disturbance, and after that a long pause of a hundred and sixty-eight years. During this interval, however, the volcanic system, of which Vesuvius is the main but not the only vent, had been disturbed twice for it is related that in 1198 the Sulfata Lake crater was in eruption, and in 1302 Ischia, dormant for at least 1400 years, showed signs of new activity. 
For more than a year earthquakes had convulsed this island from time to time, and at length the disturbed region was relieved by the outburst of a lava stream from a new vent on the south side of Ischia. The lava stream flowed right down to the sea, a distance of two miles. For two months this dreadful outburst continued to rage. Many houses were destroyed, and although the inhabitants of Askia were not completely expelled, as happened of old with Greek colonists, yet a partial emigration took place. The next eruption of Vesuvius occurred in 1306, and then three centuries and a quarter passed during which only one eruption, and that an unimportant one, in 1500, took place. It was remarked, says Sir Charles Lyell, that throughout this long interval of rest, Etna was in a state of unusual activity, so as to lend countenance to the idea that the great Sicilian volcano may sometimes serve as a channel of discharge to elastic fluids and lava that would otherwise rise to the vents in Campania. Nor was the abnormal activity of Etna the only sign that the quintessence of Vesuvius was not to be looked upon as any evidence of declining energy in the volcanic system. In 1538 a new mountain was suddenly thrown up in the Fagrian fields, a district including within its bounds Pozzoli, Lake Avernus, and the Softerra. The new mountain was thrown up near the shores of the Bay of Bae. It is 440 feet above the level of the bay, and its base is about a mile and a half in circumference. The depth of the crater is 421 feet, so that its bottom is only six yards above the level of the bay. The spot on which the mountain was thrown up was formerly occupied by the Lucrine Lake, but the outburst filled up the greater part of the lake, leaving only a small and shallow pool. The accounts which have reached us of the formation of this new mountain are not without interest. Falconi, who wrote in 1538, mentions that several earthquakes took place during the two years preceding the outburst, and above twenty shocks on the day and night before the eruption. The eruption began on September twenty ninth, fifteen thirty eight. It was a Sunday, about one o'clock in the night, when flames of fire were seen between the hot baths and Tripagola. In a short time the fire increased to such a degree that it burst open the earth in this place, and threw up a quantity of ashes and pumice stones mixed with water which covered the whole country. The next morning the poor inhabitants of Zoli quitted their habitations in terror, covered with the muddy and black shower which continued the whole day in that country, flying from death, but with death painted in their countenances, some with their children in their arms, some with sacks full of their goods, others leading an ass, loaded with their frightened family towards Naples. The sea had retired on the side of Bae, abandoning a considerable tract, and the shore appeared almost entirely dry. 
from the quantity of ashes and broken pumice stones thrown up by the eruption. Pietro Giacomo de Toledo gives us some account of the phenomena which preceded the eruption. The plain which lies between Lake Avernus, the Mount Barbaro, and the sea was raised a little, and many cracks were made in it, from some of which water issued. At the same time the sea immediately adjoining the plain dried up about two hundred paces, so that the fish were left on the sand, a prey to the inhabitants of Pozzoli. At last, on September twenty-ninth, about two o'clock in the night, the earth opened near the lake and discovered a horrid mouth, from which were furiously vomited smoke, fire, stones, and mud composed of ashes, making at the time of the opening a noise like the loudest thunder. The stones which followed were by the flames converted to pumice, and some of these were larger than an ox. The stones went about as high as a crossbow will carry, and then fell down sometimes on the edge, and sometimes into the mouth itself. The mud was the color of ashes, and at very first liquid, then by degrees less so, and in such quantities that in less than twelve hours, with the help of the above-mentioned stones, a mountain was raised of a thousand paces in height. Not only Pozzoli and the neighboring country were full of this mud, but the city of Naples also, so that many of its palaces were defaced by it. This eruption lasted two nights and two days without intermission, though not always with the same force. The third day the eruption ceased, and I went up with many people to the top of the new hill and saw down into its mouth, which was a round cavity about a quarter of a mile in circumference, in the middle of which the stones which had fallen were boiling up just as a cauldron of water boils on the fire. The fourth day it began to throw up again, and the seventh day much more, but still with less violence than the first night. At this time many persons who were on the hill were knocked down by the stones and killed, or smothered with the smoke. And now, for nearly a century, the whole district continued in repose. Nearly five centuries have passed since there has been any violent eruption of Vesuvius itself and the crater seemed gradually assuming the condition of an extinct volcano the interior of the crater is described by braxini who visited vesuvius shortly before the eruption of sixteen thirty one in terms that would have fairly represented its condition before the eruption of seventy nine the crater was five miles in circumference and about a thousand paces deep its sides were covered with brushwood, and at the bottom there was a plain on which cattle grazed. In the woody parts wild boars frequently harbored. In one part of the plain, covered with ashes, were three small pools, one filled with hot and bitter water, another salter than the sea, and the third hot but tasteless. But in December 1631 the mountain blew away the covering of rock and cinders which supported these woods and pastures. Seven streams of lava poured from the crater, causing a fearful destruction of life and property. Rosina, 
built over the site of Herlachium, was entirely consumed by a raging lava stream. Heavy showers of rain generated by the stream involved during the eruption caused in their turn an amount of destruction scarcely less important than the resulting from the lava streams. For falling upon the cone and sweeping thence large masses of ashes and volcanic dust, these showers produced destructive streams of mud, consistent enough to merit the name of aqueous lava commonly assigned to it. An interval of thirty-five years passed before the next eruption. By 1666 there has been a continual series of eruptions, so that the mountain has scarcely ever been at rest for more than ten years together. Occasionally there have been two eruptions within a few months, and it is well worthy of remark that, during the three centuries which have elapsed since the formation of Monte Nuvo, there has been no volcanic disturbance in any part of the Neapolitan volcanic district, save in Vesuvius alone. Of old, as Brieslack will remarks, there has been irregular disturbances in some part of the Bay of Naples once in every two hundred years. The eruption of Solfatara in the twelfth century, that of Ischia in the fourteenth, and that of Monte Nuvo in the sixteenth, but the eighteenth has formed an exception to the rule. It seems clear that the constant series of eruptions from Vesuvius during the past two hundred years has sufficed to relieve the volcanic district of which Vesuvius is the principal vent. Of the eruptions which have disturbed Vesuvius during the last two centuries, those of 1779, 1793, and 1822 are in some respects the most remarkable. Sir William Hamilton has given a very interesting account of the eruption of 1779. Passing over these points in which this eruption resembled others, we may note its more remarkable features. Sir William Hamilton says that in this eruption molten lava was thrown up in magnificent jets to the height of at least 10,000 feet. Masses of stones and sori were to be seen propelled along by these lava jets. Vesuvius seemed to be surmounted by an enormous column of fire. Some of the jets were directed by the wind towards Ottajano. Others fell on the cone of Vesuvius, on the outer circular mountain Soma, and on the valley between. Falling, still red-hot and liquid, they covered a district more than two miles and a half wide, with a mass of fire. The whole space above this district, to the height of ten thousand feet, was filled also with the falling and rising lava streams, so that there were continually present a body of fire covering the extensive space I have mentioned, and extending nearly two miles high. The heat of this enormous fire column was distinctly perceptible at a distance of at least six miles on every side. The eruption of 1793 presented a different aspect. Dr. Clark tells us that millions of red-hot stones were propelled into the air to at least half the height of the cone itself. 
then turning they fell all around in noble curves they covered nearly half the cone of vesuvius with fire huge masses of white smoke were vomited forth by the disturbed mountain and formed themselves at a height of many thousands of feet above the crater into a huge ever-moving canopy through which from time to time were hurled pitch-black jets of volcanic dust and dense vapors mixed with cascades of red-hot rocks and scoriae the rain which fell from the cloud canopy was scalding hot dr clark was able to compare the different appearances presented by the lava where it burst from the very mouth of the crater and lower down when it had approached the plain as it rushed forth from its imprisonment it streamed a liquid white and brilliantly pure river which burned for itself a smooth channel through a great arched chasm in the side of the mountain it flowed with the clearness of honey in regular channels cut finer than art can imitate and glowing with all the splendor of the sun sir william hamilton had conceived adds dr clark that stones thrown upon a current of lava would produce no impression i was soon convinced of the contrary light bodies indeed of five ten and fifteen pounds weight made little or no impression even at the source but bodies of sixty seventy and eighty pounds were seen to form a kind of bed on the surface of the lava and float away with it a stone of three hundred weight that had been thrown out by the crater lay near the source of the current of lava I raised it up on one end and let it fall upon the liquid lava when it gradually sank beneath the surface and disappeared if I wished to describe the manner in which it acted upon the lava I should say that it was like a loaf of bread thrown into a bowl of very thick honey which gradually involves itself in the heavy liquid and then slowly sinks to the bottom but as the lava flowed down the mountain slopes it lost its brilliant whiteness a crust began to form upon the surface of the still molten lava and this crust broke into innumerable fragments of porous matter called scoriae underneath this crust across which dr clark and his companions were able to pass without other injury than the singeing of their boots the liquid lava still continued to force its way onward and downwards past all obstacles on its arrival at the bottom of the mountain says dr clark the whole current encumbered with huge masses of scoriae resembled nothing so much as a heap of unconnected cinders from an iron foundry rolling slowly along he says in another place and falling with a rattling noise over one another after the eruption described by dr clark the great crater gradually filled up lava boiled up from below and small craters which formed themselves over the bottom and sides of the great one poured forth lava loaded with scoriae thus up to october eighteen twenty two there was to be seen in place of a regular crater form opening a rough and uneven surface scored by huge fissures 
whence vapor was continually being poured so as to form clouds above the hideous heap of ruins but the great eruption of eighteen twenty two not only flung forth all the mass which had accumulated within the crater but wholly changed the appearance of the cone an immense abyss was formed three-quarters of a mile across and extending two thousand feet downwards into the very heart of vesuvius had the lips of the crater remained unchanged indeed the depth of this great gulf would have been far greater but so terrific was the force of the explosion that the whole of the upper part of the cone was carried clean away and the mountain reduced in height by nearly a full fifth of its original dimensions from the time of its formation the chasm gradually filled up so that when mr scrope saw it soon after the eruption its depth was reduced by more than a thousand feet of late vesuvius has been as busy as ever in eighteen thirty three and eighteen thirty four there were eruptions and in eighteen fifty six another great outburst took place then for three weeks together lava streamed down the mountain slopes a river of molten lava swept away the village of circolo and ran nearly to the sea at pont madaloni there were then formed ten small craters within the great one but these have now united see date of article and pressure from beneath has formed a vast cone where they had been the cone has risen above the rim of the crater from which torrents of lava are poured forth at first the lava formed a lake of fire but the seething mass found an outlet and poured in a wide stream towards Ottajano. masses of red-hot stone and rock are hurled forth and a vast canopy of white vapor hangs over vesuvius forming at night when illuminated by the raging mass below a glory of resplendent flame around the summit of the mountain it may seem strange that the neighborhood of so dangerous a mountain should be inhabited by races free to choose more peaceful districts yet though herculaneum pompeii and stabi lie buried beneath the lava and ashes thrown forth by the vesuvius Portici and Retsina, Torre de Greco and Torre del Anzuyata have taken their place, and a very large population, cheerful and prosperous, flourishes around the disturbed mountain, and over the district of which it is the somewhat untrustworthy safety valve. It has indeed been well pointed out by Sir Charles Lyell that the general tendency of subterranean movements when their effects are considered for a sufficient lapse of ages is eminently beneficial and that they constitute an essential part of that mechanism by which the integrity of the habitable surface is preserved why the working of this same machinery should be attended with so much evil is a mystery far beyond the reach of our philosophy and must probably remain so until we are permitted to investigate not 
our planet alone and its inhabitants but other parts of the moral and material universe with which they may be connected could our survey embrace other worlds and the events not of a few centuries only but of periods as indefinite as those with which geology renders us familiar some apparent contradictions might be reconciled and some difficulties would doubtless be cleared up but even then as our capacities are finite while the scheme of the universe must be infinite both in time and space it is presumptuous to suppose that all sources of doubt and perplexity would ever be removed on the contrary they might perhaps go on augmenting in number although our confidence in the wisdom of the plan of nature might increase at the same time for it has been justly said by sir humphrey davy that the greater the circle of light the greater the boundary of darkness by which it is surrounded from the cornhill magazine march 1868 end of section 15 recording by linda marie nielsen vancouver bc